Welcome to Nighttime. I'm Dave Wager, your host, here in the studios at Silver Birch Ranch on the campus of the Nicolay Bible Institute. Each nighttime broadcast is something that comes to you for about a half hour, where we try and unscramble kind of the crazy thoughts that come to us throughout the day. It's nice to have a moment of quiet and reflection, a moment where we can just think together and not argue about anything. This isn't meant to start arguments or finish arguments. This is meant to give us a platform to think as we relax, maybe a cup of tea in our hand at night, and try and get ready to get refreshed and renewed through sleep. Those regular listeners to Nighttime know I've been enjoying reading through my dad's old file of illustrations, stories that were given in messages throughout his years that were given to illustrate a point. Some might think, well, that's interesting, but it's not the Bible. No, it's not. It's stories that were used to help teach the Bible. It's kind of like parables in a way, something to help us understand the truth that is taught in God's Word. There's never anything that's a substitute for the Bible. There's not a story or a preacher that can speak outside of the Bible and make things better. But sometimes stories add a a special twist, a, a turn that helps us understand something. Sometimes they're just humorous. Sometimes they point out our human side that we're really not acknowledging. I was reading one that was called, Isn't It Funny? I don't know where it came from. It's just an old yellowed newspaper clipping that's put onto a card. It says this, Funny how $10 bills look so big when you take it to worship, but so small when you take it to the supermarket. Funny how reading the church bulletin is a chore, but reading a 30-page newspaper every day is a habit you've grown to enjoy. Funny how long an hour is spent in worship, how short it is when golfing, fishing, or attending a ball game. Funny how we applaud when the ball game goes into overtime, but we complain if the worship hour is over the regular time. Funny how laborious it is to read a chapter in the Bible, but how easy it is to read a 300-page novel. Funny how much difficulty some have learning a simple gospel well enough to tell others, but how simple it is for people, the same people, to understand and explain more difficult subjects. Funny how people scramble to get a front seat at the ball game, but scramble to get the back seat at church services. Funny how we can't fit a gospel meeting into our schedule with a year to plan for it but we can adjust the schedule for other events in a moment's notice. Funny that parents are so concerned about school lessons, but are completely unconcerned about Bible lessons. Funny how everyone wants to go to heaven, providing he, she doesn't have to believe or think or say or to do anything. I guess it would be funny if it wasn't so tragic. In all of our lives, there are inconsistencies, things that we say we believe, but we act in a different way. I wonder what we need to do in our lives to see ourselves clearly. Probably the best thing is to read God's Word and apply it to our lives. 
another illustration that he has. And at the top, he wrote, God knows what is best for us. It was taken from the Reader's Digest. I don't know what year. The actual illustration was given in 1983, however. It says this. Reader's Digest once featured a story about a young man who owned a Model T Ford. One day, his antique car broke down along the highway. An expensive car stopped in front of the young man, and a distinguished gentleman stepped out. In a few minutes, the distinguished gentleman, a businessman, had the unique car running again. How did this millionaire know how to fix a Model T? Simple. He was Henry Ford. That is the way it is with God. You and I were created by the Lord of the universe. And God says, look, I created you. I can tell you who you are. I can give you meaning and purpose in life and a hope for the future. That little story is pretty powerful. God, the King of kings, the Lord of lords, the creator and sustainer of all life. He would get out of his car and help us, tell us what we need to do if we're wanting to know. God loves to help us be successful. He loves to show us what we need to do to be successful. He created us. He knows. I keep telling young people there's a way that you were made, and as you live in that context, you'll be okay. But if you think you're made accidentally somehow, and that there is no context, you're in trouble. You'll be struggling with depression and anger and anxiety. Because you're not living according to the way you were actually created to live. Henry Ford could help this young person put that Model T together because Henry Ford, among all people in the world, knew what was necessary to make that that Model T run. Here's one at the top that's entitled, What If? One of the great disasters of history took place in 1271. In 1271, Niccolo and Matteo Polo, the father and uncle of Marco, were visiting the Kublai Khan. Kublai Khan at that time was a world ruler, for he ruled all China, all India, and all of the East. He was attracted to the story of Christianity, as Nicole and Matteo had told to him. And he said to them this, You shall go to your high priest and tell him on my behalf to send me 100 men skilled in your religion, and I shall be baptized. And when I am baptized, all my barons and the great men will be baptized and their subjects will receive baptism too. And there will be more Christians here than in your parts. Nothing was done. Nothing was done for about 30 years. And then two or three missionaries were sent. Too few, too late. It baffles the imagination to think what a difference to the world it would have made if in the 13th century China had become fully Christian. If in the 13th century India had become fully Christian. If in the 13th century the East had been given to Christ. In that we have seen man frustrating God's purposes in history. What if? Now, I know that God doesn't need me or you or anyone else to do his work. That God could have sent a donkey to answer all of this. I understand that. The point of the story isn't anything about the limitation of God. 
it has to do with the what-ifs of life. What if today I was in tune with the Holy Spirit of God and I did what the Holy Spirit guided me to do? Whose life would I affect? What would it look like? What would I be saying? What would I be doing? How would I be spending my money? What if I listened to the guidance of the Holy Spirit all the time? What if I did what was right, regardless of how I felt, how I thought, what I understood? What if? What would happen? What could happen? I guess I don't know. I do know that I should listen to God. And when I do, great things can and will happen. Here's one entitled, Bullseye. Some of us live our lives like this. No aim, but justify all we do. A sign seer driving the countryside and admiring the scenery stopped his car to get a better look at an unusual sight. A barn with targets all over it and an arrow in the center of each bullseye. Intrigued, the traveler asked the farmer who the expert marksman was. The farmer replied, No one around here is an excellent marksman. This was done by the village idiot. He comes out and shoots arrows, and then he paints targets around them. (laughs) Isn't that how we often do it in life? We first shoot the arrow, then put a target around and tell people this is why we did what we did. We wanted to hit the bullseye. It'd be way too much effort to actually aim and learn to shoot. It's a whole lot easier to paint the circles later and tell everyone we know what we're doing. Here's an illustration from the Christian Herald. I'm not sure what year again, and it's titled by my dad as a heart condition. A certain lady had gone to the communion in a Scottish church and had greatly enjoyed the service. She inquired who the preacher was, and she was told that it was Mr. Ebenezer Erskine. The lady said she would go again, the next Sabbath, to hear him. She went, but was not profited in the least. The sermon did not seem to have any power to it. She went to Mr. Erskine and told him of her experience at the two services. Ah, madam, said he. The first Sabbath you came to meet the Lord Jesus, and you had a blessing. But the second you came to hear me, and you had no blessing, and had no right to expect any. Well, that's pretty powerful. We're expecting those who teach us to make sure that we do everything right and hear everything right. Perhaps we're looking for the wrong thing. Perhaps we've idolized those who teach. Instead of going to listen to the Spirit of God. I remember when I was in college and there was a teacher that I had that I thought was the most boring teacher that ever walked the face of the planet. I can remember talking to my dad on the phone and he was asking about classes and I told him things were going well, but I have this one class that is so boring and it's at 8 o'clock in the morning. I can barely stay awake. My dad asked me who the teacher was and I told him, And I heard that unusual pause that my dad used to have. And he said, Dave, that man is brilliant. You need to listen to everything he says. Somehow you need to make sure that you are in tune with what he says. Because he knows God. He knows the Bible. 
listen to him. See, I was going thinking about just going to a class. My thought process was getting through the class, getting the grade that I needed to, and getting on with the next thing in life. Not only that, it was early in the morning, and I had other things to think about, like staying awake. Bottom line was, I learned to drink coffee that semester. And in the process, I learned a lot. Because my dad had the courage to tell me it wasn't about the teacher. It wasn't about the presentation. It was about somebody who actually knew God and could tell me about who God is. See, I needed to look for God, and I needed to look for the lessons that were being taught, not to the human doing the teaching. It's important that we put things in perspective. As a teacher, I have a rule that says there are no bad students, only bad teachers. That simply means if you're a student of mine and you haven't learned, then I haven't taught you, and it's my responsibility to keep looking for a way to teach you. As a student, I have the opposite, in fact, in place, where I believe there are no bad teachers, only bad students. So if I'm not learning as I sit under a teacher, no matter who it is, then it's because I don't want to learn. I've decided to focus on something other than learning. If you want to be a learner, you can set yourself up to be a learner. If you want to be a teacher, you can set yourself up to be a teacher. But you need to understand what your responsibility in all of that is. As one who is a professional teacher, I understand that there are times where no matter what I do or no matter what I say, my student will not understand, will not grow, will not develop into the person I'm dreaming about. And it really isn't my responsibility. I understand that. But I never want to make it easy on myself when it comes to the area of responsibility. If you don't understand something while you're listening to nighttime, then it's because I didn't say it right. And I would need to think about how I say it differently so that you can finally get it. Or perhaps it's because you've been dozing off and you're not listening anyway. And that's my great dilemma because I am hoping that I can relax you at the end of the day and help you sleep. I read another one that talks about effort in a human life. The article is from the Falkenberg in New York Herald Tribune. I have no idea what year, I'm sorry. But the story says, I've known what it's like to be defeated, says Mike DeSalle, head of the Office of Prince Stabilization. In Toledo, he was defeated in his first campaign for court clerk, then elected to the state legislator, defeated for city council, then elected to it, elected vice mayor and mayor, and defeated in the congressional and senatorial primaries. But when he talks about these defeats, he points to an editorial on the wall which says, Failed in Business, 1931. Defeated for legislator, 32. Again failed in business, 33. Elected to legislator, 34. Sweetheart dies, 35. Had nervous breakdown, 36. Defeated for speaker, 38. Defeated for elector, 40. 
defeated for Congress, 43. Elected to Congress, 46. Defeated for Congress, 48. Defeated for Senate, 55. Defeated for Vice President, 56. Defeated for Senate, 58. Elected President, 60. That is my personal recipe for licking defeatism, says DeSalle. It is the outline of the life of Abraham Lincoln. So many times we quit too early. I have often found that if I would just stick with something a little bit longer, the success is waiting for me. Sometimes when I feel like quitting, that's the worst time to quit. My dad used to not like quitting at all, actually. He could almost put up with anything else but quitting. I remember when I went to play football in college, I was so excited about playing. When I got there, they put this helmet on my head. And the helmet was a McGregor helmet at the time. I still remember the name. There had been some injuries in the school before, and they were trying to fit these helmets right, and maybe they were doing a good job. I don't know. But I am one who suffers a little bit from being claustrophobic. I hate having my head closed in. So when I went to play football, they put this helmet on and they pounded it on my head. This helmet made my head throb and I couldn't wait to take the helmet off. Yet our coaches had a rule, you don't take that helmet off. You leave it on until the end of practice. If they caught you with it off, you were in trouble. It was part of the discipline. Well, that helmet was driving me totally crazy. My first couple weeks as I played college football, I was totally in another world. I was throwing up all the time because my head was spinning. I was trying to be in a play, and in between, I would run over the sidelines and throw up. I lost 20, 30 pounds that first couple weeks. For a freshman trying to earn a spot on a football team in college, to lose that much weight and to be that confused, for the first two weeks of practice didn't make any sense. I can remember talking to my dad at the end of two-a-days, which was the preparatory period for the season. And I was telling him, Dad, I can't handle this helmet. He said, tell me about it. And I told him about the pain. I told him about the red forehead and the throwing up and the nausea. He said, Dad, I'm going to quit. I can't do this. These coaches are nuts. I used the quit word. My dad told me, son, you don't quit. You promised them you'd play. You need to continue to play. You need to finish your commitment. And I thought, really? This is about somebody trying to kill me with a helmet. And my dad wants me to finish my commitment. Well, he was teaching me a very valuable lesson there. I didn't realize all that was waiting for me around the corner of keeping that commitment. It wasn't long before the coaches realized that that helmet was being a stumbling block and they switched it. I got a different one. I went on to be voted All-State my junior year. And if you were to ask me about the greatest experiences in my life, they'd probably revolve around being a believer, having a great family, seeing God work at Silver Birch Ranch, Nicolay Bible Institute, and being able to play football in my college years. If you were to ask me my best college memories, it would definitely be playing football. 
If you were to ask me what class I learned the most in in college, I would tell you it was on the football field, not in a classroom, and that I learned far more there than I ever would have in a classroom. I almost quit. I almost missed all those lessons. It came very close because I was about to give in when I heard the voice of a very reasonable man say, Son, you know that quitting isn't an option. And it really wasn't for me. I'm thankful for my dad. I'm thankful for his strength. I'm thankful that he, in one way, forced me to continue to play. I have another story here that he has pasted to a card. I wish you could see these. These are all yellowed. They were used 30, 40, 50 years ago in messages as he taught God's Word at Emmanuel Bible Church in Berwyn, Illinois. This one is called Undesirable Privacy. It starts with Philippians 2, 4, where it says, Look not every man on his own things, but every man also on the things of others. While visiting a beautiful farming area in Pennsylvania, I was told by the host about a whole community that had recently banded together to rebuild a neighbor's barn destroyed by a fire. They'd come to the aid of this needy family, and by their unselfish labors had demonstrated genuine concern. In contrast, Philip Slater had written that today's enormous technology appears to have made it unnecessary for one human being ever to ask anything of another in the course of his daily activities. He implies that this has increased the tendency of people to live independently. He goes on to say, even within the family, Americans are unique in their feeling that each member should have a separate room, a separate telephone, and his own car when economically possible. We seek more and more privacy, but are more and more alienated and lonely when we get it. Any selfish withdrawal from those who need us is contrary to the example of our Lord. Although he often sought the solitude of some desert place to commune with the Heavenly Father, he never isolated himself from people. The Bible says, For even the Son of Man came not to be ministered unto, but to minister, and to give his life a ransom for many. Mark 10.45 His was the self-giving love, a total involvement in the lives of others. You may build a wall of selfishness around you, but it only creates a barrier that robs you of the joy of giving and serving. Avoid all costs at undesirable privacy. There's an anonymous poem at the bottom that says, God pity him who lives for self, that one who does not share. The grief and joys of other men, that one who does not care. God pity him who does not give to others when in need. God pity him who works the plans for only selfish greed. Back then, undesirable privacy would be interesting, and today it's even worse. We can communicate with nobody all day and think that we've communicated with people online. It's important that people connect with each other again. It's important that we see each other when we communicate and not just hear each other. 
not just look at each other on a screen, but see each other and be in the presence of other people. Loneliness is epidemic proportions right now. In a world where communication is at its apex, loneliness is also at its apex. That's interesting. Here's another illustration from my dad's box. Used in 1975 last. Conscious stricken, Charles IX of France cried at death, Nurse, nurse, what murder, what blood. A man fell ill in Paris just after the death of Voltaire, the atheist, and called for a professional nurse who asked, Is the gentleman a Christian? Why do you inquire? asked the messenger. The lady replied, I am the nurse who attended Voltaire in his last illness, and for all the wealth of Europe, I would not see another infidel die. Robert Murray McChain said, I was in the very wicked home today where a child had died. I opened my Bible and explained Hebrews 9.27 to them over the coffin of the little one. Solemn words, we have only once to die, and the day is fixed. If you die wrong the first time, you cannot come back and die a better time the second time. If you die without Christ, you cannot come back to be converted and die a believer. You have but once to die. Oh, pray that you may find Christ before death finds you. After this, the judgment, not after this purgatory. This certainly is an interesting dialogue where it talks about solemn words. We have only once to die and the day is fixed. If you die wrong the first time, you cannot come back to die better a second time. That would be inscribed or should be inscribed somewhere where you look at it on a regular basis. If you die without Christ, you cannot come back to be converted and die a believer. You have but once to die. It is appointed unto man to live and then once to die. And after death is judgment. Those who have their trust in Jesus Christ as their Savior, they have a second life. In fact, they will live on for eternity with Jesus. Those who die without Christ will have a second death, a death that will separate them forever. You and I cannot pick the time of our death as we didn't pick the time of our birth. But it will happen. And it has happened to everyone all the way through history. Here's another illustration. Magnitude of God, my dad wrote at the top. Last time this was used was 1985. Skywatch. Since we live and often camp along the foggy Oregon coast, it was quite a change for us when we took our camping into the Rocky Mountains. On our first night at Mesa Verde National Park in Colorado, the sky seemed more brilliant than we had ever seen it, and the stars were so close you felt as if you could touch them. Our three boys decided that they would put their sleeping bags out on the ground so they could go and sleepwatch the stars. We were just settling down for the night when our youngest came into the tent, dragging his sleeping bag with him. What's the matter, we asked. Is it getting too cold? No, he answered. I just never knew I was so small. When you look at creation and you see how immense it is, you're going to feel small. But when you feel small, 
understand something. That the creator and sustainer of everything you see loves you and wants you to be a part of what he does. The smallness that we feel is right. But the love that we also feel from God Almighty, the creator and sustainer of everything that we see, is also right. And it allows us to live our lives with tremendous significance. I have great significance right now. Not because I'm talented. Not because I sit in a radio studio here at Silver Birch Ranch. But because I am loved by the King of Kings, the creator and sustainer of the universe. And I enjoy the various gifts that he has given me. This time of year that this is recorded is winter. And I love to go out cross-country skiing and see the sparkling snow and enjoy the wonders of creation that my Heavenly Father has given to me and to all those who go out into the woods and enjoy what He's done. Well, I hope you've enjoyed these stories. If so, let me know because I have more. I'm just not sure how much more I'll put into it. This is Dave Wager again, coming to you in this program's called Nighttime. Done in the studios at Silver Birch Ranch on the campus of the Nicolay Bible Institute. I invite you to check, check out those websites, for we'd love to serve you and your family on these grounds. SilverBirchRanch.org Good night for now.